after a day of tents being ripped off their moorings by the wind and then apparently flooding in Derbyshire or something as a result of our stuff on water and then the planes flying over yesterday just any time you see anything looking like it might turn into a fire run and hide we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3 for our final day if you again if you haven't been with us um back to just summed it really well but we've been looking at the, the main theme I've been trying to cover is the fear of God and the fear of Jesus and how it is that fearing God is good and on the first day, we looked at Jesus as king of the wind, and we saw that there is a difference between fearing a mighty power that is uncontrollable, that's trying to kill you, but the greater fear mixed with joy that comes when you fear the one who is for you, who is able to silence the wind by saying, shush. And then on the second day, we saw Jesus walking on the water and walking on the sea and saw him as king of the sea. And in some ways, the same point is made, that you look, you're scared of the, wind, of the waves and the sea, but you are utterly astounded at the one who can walk upon the sea and then get into the boat with you and say, take heart, I am, don't be afraid. And then yesterday we saw Jesus as king of the earth. And as we've just been hearing, even alluded to in that interview, the idea that Jesus as king of the earth, when he, his, the weight of his glory collides with the transient silliness of our, sometimes of our lives and our false gods, it causes a self-quake. And that's why there are earthquakes at the death and the resurrection of Jesus, because the mighty weight of glory of the king of the earth collides with sin and causes a sin quake, collides with death and causes a death quake, and earthquakes respond as the earth is effectively saying to their creator, you are heavier and weightier than we are, and we have to make way for you. And the result, of course, is a variety of different responses of fear. Fear in awe and worship, fear mixed with joy, if you're the women, the exhilaration, and by the way, if you want a little walking analogy of fear mixed with joy, that ride just a few yards away from here, I went on that yesterday. That's a good example of fear mixed with joy, right? You're upside down, swinging over, wailing and screaming with lots of young people taking pictures of you. And that's fear mixed with joy. If you want to know what it's like, it's that sense of, wow, this is the most amazing experience, but it's kind of scary as well. That's, that's the Christian life in many ways. That's, the, that's, the, that's what it feels like to proclaim Jesus risen from the dead. This is amazing. This is joy-filled. But there is an awe here because he is mighty and glorious. And I'm sort of flying at the top end of that ride as I'm declaring who Jesus is to the world. And then today we're going to look at the king of the fire. And we're going to be in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. And what I'm going to do is, a bit, is, unlike the others, I'm going to read through this story a little bit at a time. It's the story of God appearing to Moses in the burning bush. And it's a story about... God as the king of the fire. And what I want to do primarily this morning is to look, now as we go back, in, you know, in, a, in a day or two, we're going to be back in normal life. And as we look to going back into normal life, I want to ask the question, how do we move from fear to faith? How, do, how does the fear of God help us be bold and courageous in the life and ministry and calling and context and school context that we are sent into? How does the fear of God, the fear of the king of the wind, sea, earth, and fire equip us to be courageous and bold and faith-filled as we do normal life and go into the places we're sent? So we're going to move from fear to faith, praise God, and we're going to read Exodus chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb 
the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So I pause there, right? God reveals himself as king of the fire. In fact, in the story we're going to read, we get the three names of God that are going to dominate the way that the nation or God's people respond to God for thousands of years. And we still use those words of God today. We're going to look at three names as we go through this text. This is one of the foundational passages in the whole of Scripture for identifying who God is and what He's like. And in the encounter that we're going to read, God is speaking from inside the fire. God has revealed Himself almost more than he has revealed himself as king of the wind, sea, and earth. He has revealed himself as the king of the fire, not just in the sense of the one who is lord over fires, but the one who, when he chooses to reveal himself, comes aflame. He comes burning. There is a sense in which the fire picture of God is a stronger image for God than wind, sea, and earth. And if you think through the whole Bible, you realize the number of times God appears as a flaming torch or with fire in his eyes or with burning feet. And you read again and again and again, people encounter God and they see fire, they see flame, they see brightness. And I want to pause even at this early stage in the text and say, why is that? What is it about God that is fiery? Why is that symbol so significant to us as we consider who God is? I think there are probably a bunch of reasons. The Bible doesn't even explain as such a lot of the time. But fire is kind of bright, right? That's one of the things that happens when you see a fire. I don't mean when you turn on a fire in your house. But I mean when you, you get a, a big bonfire, right? A proper one. I don't mean one you do in your garden to burn the leaves. I mean you go out on bonfire night and people are burning sofas and massive towers of flame the size of this stage. There is something quite attractive about fires like that, but also very frightening, isn't it? Something, a really big raging furnace like that, you look at it and you, as you want to get near it, you think, oh, it's cold. I do. It's November the 5th. It's freezing cold. You walk along with your, I hate those polystyrene cups with little soup in them that burns your tongue. I hate that thing. And you're walking along and you go, I'm trying to get warm some other way. So what I will do is I will get as near to the fire as I can. And you're cold, 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 little bit warm, nice and warm, and then you get here and you're like, too hot, too hot, back off, back off. And everybody in the circle is like trying to get to exactly the right place. And people who are a little bit too near are getting toasted, and people a bit further back are too cold. And there's that line where you realize this has stopped being warming and attractive. This is now frighteningly fierce, and it's also just intensely bright, isn't it? As you stand there looking at this big furnace glowing and sending up all this, it's like I want to kind of look because I'm interested about how they've done that, but there's also an eye hiding that needs to happen when you get too close. There's something that draws us about fire, but almost no sooner have we been drawn in than we are sent back with an appropriate sense of fear not to get too close. And I think that's partly why God appears as king of the fire, because there's something of that in God's. Is there not? That God draws you to approach him and say, come, come, come. I want to warm your life. I want to give you some of my fire to equip you and set you alight. But there's a point at which you get so, you get a little bit close and you think, wow, God is burning holiness. He is glorious. He is other. And there is something 
needs to be treated with respect and reverence and awe, and I don't want to get flippant with this fire. I want to be close and intimate with you, Lord, but I don't want to get flippant and act as if somehow I'm in control of this, because I'm definitely not. So I think that's part of the reason. There's a brightness and a fierceness. There's an unsafeness to fire. Fire is incredibly… I mean, our entire world is run by fire. The reason why… We, we don't often call it fire, we call it electricity. But our entire world now has… The reason why we are all able… I mean, you guys have encountered fire multiple times already today, or at least the ones who have eaten and washed properly have. Okay, so there's a bunch of you here today who have used fire, or someone on your site has used fire to prepare you some sort of hot food, right? I imagine a bunch of you have eaten a, a sausage or bacon and it was cooked on fire. And you went and had a shower and that was heated up by fire. And then you walked in here and you got lights everywhere and you got warmth effectively coming from all around you and you got television screens, which ultimately very little fires. And everywhere, our world is run by fire. There's a power and an energy and a, a necessity that we depend on fire. And in fact, the entire human race is only able to be as we are in charge of this planet, in large part, the gift of fire has enabled us to do that. As human beings discovered fire, we're able, we can cook stuff, we can store stuff, we can eat safely, we can be more efficient with our use of energy, we can harness the world to make energy for us, and as a result, we as a species have been able to govern the world because of fire. That fire is powerful, it's a gift, but it's not safe. Or at least, in order for it to be safe, you have to use a lot of precautions. You have to put there's a, the number of checks and balances in this big top right now to make sure that it's safe for us to use fire, that lest there be a fire. It's incredibly careful. That's the, there's, people on this, there's people whose entire week and year preparing for New Day is built around making sure that it's safe from fire. Because there is a power to this gift, but it's also not entirely safe. There's a, there's a sense of, I don't want to become over-familiar with this gift. I know that it could get me in that's exactly the same as true of God. As we come to this there is a mighty power to the Lord God. But I don't want to act as if someone, I just, yeah, well, it's just me and God. I'm fine. I can do whatever I want. Yeah, no, he's not going to get me. And as many people in the scriptures will attest, sometimes the fire breaks out against you. You have to be careful. You have to be appropriately reverent towards the king of the fire. So I think there's a whole bunch of reasons why the image of fire is used. But notice, in this story... The fire that is burning up the bush is not consuming the bush. Did you notice that phrase? It said, Moses looked at the, fire, looked at the bush, but he said, it was not consumed. And I think there's something beautiful in there for us about the, rev the character of God, that God is fiery and glorious and life-giving and powerful and not that safe, but God's purpose in his very being is not to destroy. God's desire in coming to you in fire is not to destroy you so that the bush just disintegrates into nothing. His purpose is to come and let, set a light and set a flame and reveal himself and be known as holy and awesome and other, but not to destroy you, to provoke in you the sense that he then provokes in Moses as we carry on reading the text. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush isn't burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. So the, the, you think the, the fiery bush knows my name. The Lord God knows my name. And he said, here I am. Then he said, don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, 
I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. That's what God wants for you as the king of the fire. He doesn't want to destroy you. His purpose is not to obliterate you as a, like a burning bush that just suddenly disintegrates and flakes on the floor into ash. His purpose in coming to you is that you might take off your sandals, acknowledge his holiness, hear him calling your name, and approach him boldly, yet with suitable reverence and awe for the fact that he is other than you. That's what he wants to do. That's what the king of the fire wants to, how he wants to be known. He wants you to fear him in a way that draws you in, not fear, you, not fear him in a way that makes you run away. And Moses approaches, and then God reveals himself. I said there are three names for God in this text, and this is the first one. He says, I am the God of your father, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the first name. God wants us to know, wants Moses to know, I am the God of, the, of history, of the past. I am the God of all the people who have gone before you. I am their God as much as I am yours. I am yours as much as I was theirs, and I want you to know that I am the same God, the God of history. So Moses hides his face because he is afraid to look at God. Sometimes people say to me uh, when I'm talking as a pastor or ask, answering questions in events and things, people say some, something like this. When I meet God, I'm really looking forward to asking him this. And sometimes they mean it kind of in a silly way. Sometimes they mean it in a serious way. I think God has got this bit wrong, and I'm looking forward to putting that question to him. When I eventually meet God, I'm going to say, God, what were you thinking when you did this, or that happened, or this? And sometimes that comes from a place of pain. Sometimes it comes from a place of feeling, to be honest, a little bit big for our boots, that we can hold God to account rather than the other way around. My, um, my wife's grandmother was a... Uh, She's dead now, but she, we know as Nanny James. She's a pretty, pretty fiery lady, right? Godly woman, like fourth generation of faith in my family with my kids. I'm thinking, praise God for Nanny James. She is a remarkable woman. But she was pretty scary as well. Like she was like a sort of one of those, you know, those people who come for you and you run. Like that, she was like that, even though you know I could probably take her, but I'm not sure I'd try. Um, that sort of person. And she was sitting over towards the end of her life in her mid-70s, she was sitting over a meal in our family context, and she said, you know, when I meet God, I shall be very interested to ask him if I was right about the person who was vetoing the East Grinstead bypass. And then she paused, and we were like, what? And she said, I don't know his name, but I do know where he lives. And I was like, that is such a terrifying comment. And he's like, Nanny, when you come face to face with God... You are not going to ask him about the East Grinstead bypass. You're going to do what Moses did and what Isaiah did and what John did and what everybody who meets God in the Bible does. You're going to want to hide your face because you're afraid to look at him. He's on fire. You're not going to be debating the bypass with this guy. You're going to be hiding in reverence and you're going to have to need him to come to you as, of course, Jesus comes to the Apostle John and God comes to Moses and says, don't worry, stand up, don't be afraid. It's just me. I love you. You're going to need that dynamic of hiding and having him restore you, not the other way around. He's saying, yeah, I'm going to tell you a thing or two, Lord. That bypass, that was a right pain. Who was that guy? That's not going to be your issue. Your issue is going to be, he's on fire. How do I hide from this God before he burns me up? And then you're going to need him to come to you and say, you're my child. Welcome. You notice the dynamic. It's not what we sometimes think. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. 
Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. You hear that? I know the sufferings of my people. Your storm, I know. I know the sufferings of my people. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Oh, I love it when God doesn't answer the question. Guys, when you read Scripture, look out for moments where people are talking to God and God doesn't answer the question. Those moments are intended to teach you something. They're intended to teach you something about the kind of things we think are important and the kinds of things God thinks are important. Moses says, God says, I want you to go to the most powerful man in the world. If you study ancient history, you'll know how large and powerful and advanced the Egyptians were in this period of history. And you can still go to museums in London and see all of the incredible things they built and said and did. Amazing people. And God says to Moses, you go and confront these guys and say they've got to let my people go. And Moses says what you and I would say. Who am I that the king of Egypt would welcome me? You go, that's my question. How on earth is that going to happen? Uh, who am I? That's what you and I want to know. Who am I? Tell me who I am. And that's a kind of a valid question as well. I'm not saying it's a bad question, but it's not the most important question. But it's what our generation wants to ask all the time. Who am I? Tell me. Come on, validate me. Encourage me. Tell me how great I am. And God, he was expecting a puff piece from God. You are going to be fine because you are Moses, son of so-and-so, and you're going to be able to charge in and you're going to be strong. Who am I? And Moses is scared and he wants validation. And God doesn't answer the question at all. Moses says, who am I? And God says, what? A stupid question. God says, but I will be with you. Doesn't answer the question at all. Moses is saying, tell me about me. And God says, no, I'm going to tell you about me. I will be with you. Doesn't matter who you are. What an, what an irrelevance. It's just such a strange question, isn't it? And yet when you hear it with God's response, you think, kind of obviously, but how many of us ask exactly that question when we are sent on behalf of the living God into the world to serve him? And we say, but who am I to do that? And God says, what's that got to do with it? I'm not, I'm not even going to answer. I'm not going to dignify that with a response. I'm going to tell you, I'll be with you. That's the only thing you should care about. When I started preaching, I had a, there was a woman in our church who was probably in her 50s. And she was really helpful to me. I, I started preaching as a, a young, young guy. I was, about, I don't know, 25 at the time, something like that. And I was beginning to preach a bit more regularly. And she was great. She was a lecturer in a university. She took me to one side one day and she said, do you know, I like your preaching, but 
she said, this is kind of a paraphrase, right? This isn't exactly what she said, but this is the gist. She said, I like your preaching, but you keep saying things like, well, this is what I think, or this is my opinion. You know, I know that you... I know I'm only 25, and you probably shouldn't really listen to what I'm saying, but I think really this is... She was like, what is that? Why are you doing that? I'm not listening to you because you're you. Of course you don't know anything. The only reason I'm listening to you is because you're speaking the Word of God. And if you're not speaking the Word of God, you shouldn't be saying it. And if you are speaking the Word of God, you shouldn't be apologizing for it. And I thought, that's a good point. Who am I? And God says, but I will be with you. God, God wants you to know that, right? You're saying, who am I? And, by, and again, friends, it's not wrong. to sit this, We've just sung it, right? Who am I? I'm a child of God. I'm chosen. It's good to know those truths, right? I teach them all the time. It's good to know, but beware lest self-obsession, which is a big thing in our generation, becomes the driving question in your life. Who am I is not the ultimate question. The ultimate question is, who is he? It's who is the I am, not who am I. And God says, I'll be with you. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? Now, in our culture, that wouldn't be common, right? Most people wouldn't say, what's his name? You claim, you know, first question you ask, like the most powerful man on earth says, yeah, our entire economy our slave labor is about to walk out the door. I wonder, should we let them go or not? What's our first question going to be? How are we going to pay for it? Or just no. So why on earth is anybody thinking that the next question is going to be, what's his name? But that in the ancient world and in many cultures today, what is his name is still a very big question. Names carry a meaning in biblical culture that they probably don't in many of yours. And certainly in the kind of secular British culture that I've been brought up in, names are not very meaningful. You meet people from a lot of parts of the world, they say, what's your name? And you say, Andrew, and they say, what does this name mean? And you're like, man. (laughs) And then they say, and why did your parents give you this name? And you say, I think they like the word. And then they say, what is your father's name? And you say, Charles. And they say, what does that mean? And then you say, man. (laughs) And then they say, why did he receive this name? Because I think they like the name. And it's just like, there's no reason, right? It's just a, we just use them as sounds in many cases. But in many cultures and in biblical culture, names are very significant. They carry meaning. And so sometimes we just have to reflect, like when the power of God in revealing his name is to say, this is who I am. It's not just a, a title or a sound that associate with this image. This is who I am. Now, we don't do that. So you have Rebecca Walker up on the stage, and you don't think to yourself, aha, a tangled cord that enjoys thickening cloth. Because that's what Rebecca Walker means, but you don't think that's who she is. And when Joel Virgo steps up on the stage, you don't say, ah, Yahweh is God. And this, I mean, I don't, well, Joel, and then you probably also don't think Virgo. He's descended from a virgin. Because part of you is going, how on earth did that name ever start? Like, who is descended from a virgin other than Jesus? And he didn't have any children. So what's going on there? And by the way, you can ask him. I'm just giving you permission to stand up and Joel and say, which one of your parents was a virgin? Because that is a slightly strange arrangement, is it not? Anyway, let's raise the question. But we, you and I don't do that. We know that that's not how names function. But in biblical culture, they really do. And many of you have got names. Probably from many of us who are not 
not native to Great Britain have probably got names which carry a lot of significance in our culture, in your culture. And that's the way that it works in the Bible. So when Moses says, what's his name? Moses, me, my, my, what, what is your name? He's saying, give me some revelation about your identity that I can take with me to speak to the most powerful man in the world. It's all very well knowing that you will be with me, but who exactly are you? Help me know you. And God is now going, that's a much better question. I'm so glad you asked. Who am I? Not the right question. Who are you? What is your name? How, how do you want to be known? Great question. Now we can talk. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. See, every other, all of our names derive from other things or other people. I'm called Andrew Wilson, which means a man who is the son of William, or at least it did a long time ago, right? I've defined me in relation to someone else. And every, all of your names will do that in some way related to God or to where you used to live or what your ancestors used to do, but somewhere along the line, your name will come from another source. God doesn't. God says, I am. I am who I am. I don't define myself related to you, Moses. I don't come down, well, I'm the God who did this, that, and the other. No, no, no. I am. I am eternal. I am always. I am that I am. I have always been. I always will be. And I'm going to describe who I am in relation to your categories. I'm going to have a category all of my own, which is being, which is eternity, which is alwaysness. I am that I am. It's a great name. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So we have three names for God in this story. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am, and the Lord in capitals, and when the Lord is in capitals, it's like a a shorter version of I am that I am. And that name gets used for God 6,800 times in the Old Testament. It's the main name for God. And God is revealing himself with those three names to say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God of history. I'm the God of who has always been with my people. He says, I am that I am. I am the God of eternity. I am necessary. I am foundational. I am eternal. I am the basis for anything else existing. And then he reveals himself as the Lord, which is to say, I am not just the God of history and eternity. I am the God of the covenant. I'm the God who makes promises to you about who I am and what I will do and how much I love you and who expects you to respond to me in worship and adoration and I will promise to respond to you in mercy and grace when you fail. I am. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am that I am and I am the Lord and I want to be known this way forever and ever. So we have the revelation of God in King of the Fire comes in, as King of the Fire comes in three names. And God wants to shift your question from who am I to who are you? Who is he? And as you go out into the world, as you just do the normal things that we do, we move from fear of God to faith to take on Pharaoh simply by knowing that the I am is with us. That's how it happens. You see, if you fear God, As we've said repeatedly this week, you don't need to fear anyone else. You see, with that, if you don't have the I am with you, Pharaoh's scary. If you have the I am with you, if I am goes with you, you don't need to be scared of Pharaoh. 
You say, because I'm encountering you, but you are encountering the one who is with me, for me, and not against me. And that means if you oppose me, you're going to find yourself in trouble in the end, which is exactly what happens. So I want to finish by talking about the Gruffalo. Okay? I'm trusting this story is familiar. If it isn't, let me tell you the story. A mouse took a stroll through a deep, dark wood. A fox saw the mouse, and the mouse looked good. Where are you going to, little brown mouse? Come and have tea in my underground house. It's awfully kind of you, fox, but no. I'm going to have tea with a gruffalo. A gruffalo? What's a gruffalo? A gruffalo? Why, didn't you know? He has terrible tusks and terrible claws and terrible teeth in his terrible jaws. Ooh, where are you meeting him? Oh, here, by this stream. And his favorite, no, his, uh, here, here by these rocks. And his favorite food is roasted fox. Roasted fox? I'm off, fox said. Goodbye, little mouse. And away he sped. And the same story happens again, meets the owl, right? Same thing. Oh, owl ice cream, to wit to woo, goodbye little mouse, and away owl flew. Scrambled snake, it's time I hid, goodbye little mouse, and away snake slid. Silly old snake, doesn't he know there's no such thing as a gruffle? Ow! But who is this creature with terrible claws and terrible teeth in his terrible jaws? His eyes are orange, his tongue is black, he has purple prickles all over his back. Oh, help, oh no, it's a gruffalo! My favorite food! The Gruffalo said, you'll taste good on a slice of bread. Good, said the mouse. Don't call me good. I'm the scariest creature in this wood. Just walk behind me and soon you'll see everyone is afraid of me. Now, when you're reading the story at this point, children do something interesting. Children begin to get the joke. Because what little children, I've got three and my youngest is three, they get the joke already. They know that the punchline is coming that the mouse is going to walk back and encounter the creatures that are scared, should be scary to a mouse, right? A fox, an owl, and a snake, they all want to eat him. And they think, they already know, that the, the mouse is going to approach, and the fox or the snake or the owl are going to look at the mouse, and then they're going to look at the gruffalo, and then they're going to run and hide. And the mouse is not going to have to worry about whether or not he is powerful enough to overcome the fox, the snake, and the owl, because the gruffalo is with him. Right? And that's exactly what then starts happening. And so it goes, they walked some more till the Gruffalo said, I hear a hiss in the leaves ahead. It's Snake, said the mouse. Why Snake? Hello. Snake took one look at the Gruffalo. Oh, crumbs, he said. Goodbye, little mouse. And off he slid to his log pile house. You see, said the mouse. Told you so. Amazing, said the Gruffalo. They walked some more till the Gruffalo said, I hear a hoot in the leaves ahead. It's Owl, said the mouse. Oh, Owl, Hello. Owl took one look at the Gruffalo. Oh no, goodbye little mouse. And off he flies to his log, t- log top house. And it keeps happening all the way through. And every single time, you as an adult are reading this story with the drama and doing the characters. And the children are sitting there going, it's not about the mouse. It's not about the mouse. It's about the person who's with the mouse. This giant, powerful figure behind the mouse. The mouse is going to go and do things that on their own would be very scary. But the mouse doesn't care whether or not he's big and big. He's down here. It's like, ah! But the mouse is really, really smug because he knows that the one who's on his side is far more powerful than the people he's opposing. And all they do is take one look at the Gruffalo and they scarper. And in, and in that spirit, Pharaoh is approached by Moses and Moses says, let my people go. And Pharaoh takes one look at the I am and goes, oh crumbs, goodbye little mouse. And off he flees into his Pharaonic house. And of course in the end they all drown in the Red Sea. Friends, It's not about the mouse. 
It's not about you. Who am I is the wrong question. Who is he is the right question. He is the king of the fire. He is the Lord. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he is the I am that I am. And he will be with you. Let's stand. Let's stand. And let's pray. Lord, we, we want our lives to be built on who you are and not who we are. Lord, we acknowledge that it's not about the mouse, it's not about Moses, it's not about Andrew, it's not about any of our power, identity, achievements, brilliant background, educational concept, none of that. It's not about the mouse. We come saying we don't really know ultimately whether we could take this on ourselves. We feel like we probably couldn't, but that I am is with us. And on that basis, we can stand even if needed before pharaohs and kings and declare the word of the Lord and acknowledge that we have been sent and accompanied by the power of the God who made it all. We acknowledge and worship you as king of the fire, as the I am that I am. We adore you and we praise you. Amen.